This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, another episode featuring conversation with creative people who have a lot to say and a lot to offer. All right, open up your ears and put on your glasses because you'll want to listen and also take a good look at what we're talking about today. The Optical Heritage Museum, located in Southbridge, Massachusetts. It's dedicated to preserving the history of the optical industry from the 19th century to the present day. We have so much to talk about and the perfect person to do it with, Debbie Shiro, the Executive Director of the Optical Heritage Museum. I believe this will be a bit of an eye-opener as we invite her to join us right now on mic. I'm wearing my glasses. I love my glasses. I wear them everywhere I go and I need them. But I also want to know more about the history uh, of spectacles. So I've added uh, somebody to my list of invitees. She is Debbie Shiro, as you heard. She's the director of the Optical Heritage Museum. Debbie, uh, one assumes there's a museum for everything. I guess there had to be one of these for that. Uh Yes, there is. And thank you, Jordan, for having us here. Um, the Optical Heritage Museum houses everything you've ever wanted to know about glasses, from its inception to the industrialization to the geekiest geek information of technology, curvatures of the lens, um, standards, safety, as well as fashion. So we've got everything for, uh, for your geekiest geek to your fashionista, including a Barbie exhibit. Oh, let's talk about that in a minute. But let's explain where you are because it's, it's in Massachusetts. It's in a rather quaint little village. Where are you? Thank you. We are uh, at 12 Crane Street in Southbridge. The museum is about 7,000 square feet. We've been there for just a little over 10 years. Um, and for those of you listening, you may know that Southbridge is also known as the Eye of the Commonwealth because of American Optical, uh, which basically was the Google in its time for Southbridge. Right, right. And uh, we'll talk about Barbie, of course, but we'll also talk about Norman <laughs> Rockwell and so many other things. Uh, but it's it's a fascinating history, a fascinating story. Let's talk about American Optical. When was that company formed and what kind of impact did it really have? Yeah, so American Optical, the, the history goes back to 1830 when it was originally a jewelry manufacturer or maker by the name of William Beecher. And back then, glasses were made by jewelry makers. Mm -hmm. It was not available to the masses the way it is now. It was very expensive. The frames were made of gold, um, and it was very meticulously crafted. So it started with a jewelry-making 
endeavor, which then evolved to the industrialization of glasses through American Optical. It was eventually taken over by the the Wells family. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole list of accomplishments, achievements, and scientific breakthroughs that the museum highlights, I guess. It's incredible. It's incredible. There are so many firsts that have come out of Southbridge invented by American Optical. You know, the first laser to hit the moon, the first moon glasses worn by astronauts, uh, the birth of fiber optics, the first implantable pacemaker. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I've got, you know, 50 pages Mm. of first. But I think what's fascinating is that, you know, what, what might not seem as such an interesting subject matter is absolutely fascinating when you understand the technology that goes on behind it. Well, everyone knows the the famous pictures of Ben Franklin with his spectacles, right? And that was even before American Optical existed. But uh, when you're talking about the fact that it was jewelers who made these these devices and they were for just the elites, I mean, you think about today, everyone on the planet has access, for the most part, we hope, for some kind of eye care. Um, let's, talk yeah. a, let's talk a little bit, Debbie, uh, about some of the really cool exhibits. I was drawn, t- I mentioned him earlier, Norman Rockwell. I'm always drawn to Norman uh, Rockwell. Yeah. Did he actually uh, have a connection to Southbridge at one point with American Optical? He did. He did. He um, painted a few uh, industry paintings of opticians fitting glasses on on kids. And that was a big deal because glasses really didn't become available to kids until the industrialization and manufacture of glasses. Um, so I want to say it was in the 1920s or 30s that children actually started wearing glasses. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now there's, what, over 165 million people that wear glasses. Um, And if you ever wanted to truly understand how that came to be, how it became industrialized and available to the masses, including children, um, you you would learn all of that from the museum. The importance of technology from this one company is spelled out, I guess, Debbie, during World War II, employees of this company, according to the website, were exempted from the draft. Why were they exempted from the draft? Oh, that's a good question. I'm assuming that, um, and I hope I'm not speaking out of school here, but I'm assuming that they had such a niche uh, intelligence that was necessary for this country and the world as the global supplier of glasses. Um, so I imagine that the scientists and the the manufacturers of this was providing the service to the world. And also bomb sites, I read. Uh, they were they were involved in creating the kinds of, uh, well, weaponry that allowed us to defeat the Nazis. So that's a pretty impressive feat. Yes, and I believe it was actually the curvature of the bomb that they worked mm. on. Um, yeah, so some of those things definitely had a, a different impact on the yeah. world. But yes, uh in fact, I believe laser optics started in Southbridge because of the CIA. Wow. Uh, yeah. There's a, there's so many stories. There's also uh, forensic solves from the FBI due to glasses and prescriptions and all of that. 
You mentioned the moon. Let's go up to the moon now, can we? Uh, first of all, you mentioned yeah. the, the laser focusing on the moon. Um, that yeah. was interesting. But what about these glasses that the astronauts took up with them? Yeah. So certainly it wasn't sunglasses, but they were moon glasses for the glare of the moon. And American Optical supplied that kind of safety eyewear, uh, the, the protection, to the astronauts. Hmm. In fact, this is, this is a little bit macabre, Jordan, but I think it's a good story. Uh, John Kennedy, who was a big fan of AO glasses, actually ordered three pairs of glasses and they were received on the day that he was assassinated. Oh, wow. That's, and we have that letter in the museum. That's, again, uh, uh, a little chilling, but uh, it's happening <laughs> and it's history and it's history coming alive. That's incredible. I imagine there have been tons of famous folk, leaders and actors and sports heroes who have worn the glasses of AO over the years. All, all the like, you know, as you say, it was, I mean, everything from people that might remember Dorothy Hamill and Arthur Ashe, you know, from the 70s to Tom Cruise to Robert De Niro. To, I mean, it just, and most recently, um, Robert Downey Jr. in Oppenheimer was wearing AO glasses. Oh, of course. Yeah, that would make sense. It would, they were period piece uh, glasses and they had to be the right kind. Uh, who was the first lady of optics? It's listed on your website in the exhibits. Oh, is that Estelle Glancy? Yeah, tell, tell me a bit more about her. So, you know, she kind of reminds me of the women from the movie Hidden Figures. Mm. So she was a, a female scientist, the only one that was in the boardroom that worked along Tillier. And they had made major breakthroughs in terms of improving eyeglass wear and the fit and the, the, the radius and, and how, how um, the, the lens is actually projected. Mm -hmm. What was fascinating about her, aside from the fact that she was a female scientist back in the day when there weren't any, um, she was also extremely deaf. Mm. And they said that from that handicap, she was probably able to really focus in on her work. So uh, Estelle Glancy is, is really a, 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 a major pride for AO, mm -hmm. um, having a woman of that caliber and the contributions that she's made in terms of patents. Well, the contributions go well beyond just the, the pairs of glasses and the spectacles, we call what you will. Um, there's something called the lensometer, I'm guessing, 100 years <laughs> since its introduction. And uh, I, I have no idea what it means. I'll have you describe right. it. But it's, it's a huge step forward in ophthalmology, I guess. It is. It is. So believe me, I, I don't think most people outside of the industry even know what a lensometer is. But <laughs> we were actually honored um, last year for this invention. Um, and there weren't, I think, believe there were only 50 um, notable technological advancements. And this was one of them. So... Basically, the lensometer helped industrialize mass production of glasses. So when glasses are actually made and you get a prescription, mm -hmm. the lensometer actually accounts for whether it's accurate or not. And believe it or not, it's still used. It, that technology um, is used today still. 
So the glasses that you're wearing, Jordan, mm -hmm. probably went through a lensometer to make sure that the doctor that prescribed you that prescription was accurate in terms of what the output was. Well, I have to thank him, and I have to thank AO for the lensometer 100 years <laughs> ago. That's great. Uh, uh, yes, and we have the largest collection of lensometers in the world. We have an entire room dedicated to it. You mentioned uh, style, and of course it's – and we talked about – let's talk about Barbie because we have to. But you mentioned style, Deb, and uh, – Glasses, uh, you know, it's interesting. They're, it's kind of like neckties. They they are wide at one point. They're skinny at other points. They're in the middle at other points. Like fashion, they are trendy. Is that something that the museum catches? hundred percent. We have so much in terms of the evolution of frames and how they've evolved, including the lenses as well. Uh, you know, you mentioned Ben Franklin before and bifocals. I mean, back then they were basically like glued together. Mm. So imagine how the, the making of those lenses have evolved. But also the thickness, the the biggest breakthrough, which you'll learn at the museum and also hear from this, is that most glasses before 1930, the temples were in the middle. If you think about the old frames, where the temple part Yes. was in the middle of the frame. Oh, I see what you're saying. I'm, I'm yeah. looking at myself in the screen here, and I'm looking at my frames uh, and the – what do they call this part of the frame? The, the temple. The temple. I, I, yeah. I should know that. I'm Jewish. Uh, I'm looking at the temples, which extend from the top of the glasses. You're saying they were from the middle of the glasses? They were from the middle. Uh. And if you look at all the old glasses prior to hmm. 1930 – they all sat in the middle. It wasn't until this major breakthrough called the full view mm -hmm. where the temples were at the top. It actually sat on the no the bridge of the nose better and wrapped around the ears and just fit the face better. And, you know, they say that that major breakthrough actually kept AL going through the war um, because that was a huge shift, if you could believe it, in design and production. Just that move of, you know, a half an inch up and how, how your glasses sit today. You also have a sunglasses exhibition. And uh, I've got to tell you a quick story. Years ago on air, I had a caller call in an older lady who said she worked for a company that created sunglasses for the United States government for federal agents. I said, oh, that's pretty cool. And I think you know the kind of sunglasses I'm talking about. That You look yeah. like an FBI guy. So she yeah. sent me three or four pair. I still have them and I wear them. The only cool thing I have in my life is these sunglasses. <laughs> but tell me a little bit about the sunglasses exhibit at the uh, museum. Well, so it's interesting that we have sunglasses, not not just the AO glasses that are, are rather famous um, and, and worn by many celebrities, but also Inuit glasses, mm. right? How they were formed and basically just the technology was they were just small slits um, on the on the front of the face to prevent rays from coming in at all angles. Mm -hmm. I mean, in its most basic form. But we do still, AO still is alive in Chicago, um, and we are still making um, sunglasses. A lot of the retro wear is coming back. Um, and, um, you know, mm. as you were saying, ties get skinny and fat and skinny. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's coming, coming full circle again to that cool, Cool look. I have to ask you about one more thing, and there's, as you say, dozens of uh, really novel things to talk about. 
yeah. since I'm a movie fan. American Optical in the 1950s transformed cinema with its Todd AO <laughs> film technology. Something I, I thought I knew a lot about film. I didn't know anything about this. What was Todd oh. technology? Jordan, you're scaring me because you're really doing your homework and testing. Well, I had your, my glasses on, but... so I was able to read it all <laughs> very clearly. Well, Todd AO was a major breakthrough in cinematography because the uh, wide screen movies that we see today, back then it was very difficult to do without it being in disjointed pieces. You know, it might have been in three different um, uh, views, mm -hmm. if you will, on, on a frame. Todd Ayo was able to make it one smooth transition and mm. it was slightly curved to give that full um, wide view in, in a crystal clear image. And it was a, it was a major breakthrough then. Wow. Um, yeah, I believe around the world in 80 days, um, Hawaii um, uh, all used Todd Ayo technology. Interesting. Around the world in 80 days. I remember that movie quite well with David Niven. And and those yeah. were the days of CinemaScope and VistaVision and all that. I, I'm going to have to yeah. add Todd A.O. That's really cool. That's very, very yeah. cool. I have one more question to ask. You know what that's going to be about because we've teased it the entire interview. Barbie, what, uh, what does she have to do with the museum? Well, you know, it's interesting. Dick and I were talking about, you know, the whole Barbenheimer weekend, right? And if we like the Barbie movie and if we like the Oppenheimer movie, and then we had the idea to do a Barbie display. And in all of the research, we actually discovered that Claire McCardle, who was uh, an American ready-to-wear designer, and her stuff is featured at the Met now, um, actually partnered with AO back in the 50s to create a line of sunglasses. Now, the first Barbie was released in 1959 with the white cat eye sunglasses with blue lenses. And we thought, well, where did this come from? I mean, we know that cat eye lenses came out in, in the 1920s, but these, we believe Claire McCardle influenced because she was the number one designer in the 50s um, and produced ready to wear, which is what this would have been. So we have the 1959 Barbie with the white glasses and how she's looked through the 60s, 70s, 80s to present day. Um, so that was an interesting find because we weren't quite sure through all the research if we could find a connection point, and we did. So um, very excited about that. A question for you. You're not wearing glasses at the moment. Are, you, uh, are they there in front of you? You just took them off because you wanted to I... show off your beautiful eyes? <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. I had a whole collection of designer frames, Gucci and everything. And um, a couple years ago, I decided to get LASIK because, you know, I would switch between contacts and glasses. And yeah. because I have severe myopia in one eye, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to correct my vision to 2020. I'm almost like a cyclops, if you will. Oh, wow. And it was only in one eye. So, you know, after many years of sort of this seeing an image one slightly larger than the other, I decided to bite the bullet and do a LASIK. Uh, but I do still wear sunglasses. These are more for anti-glare. Yes. And 
course, I wear sunglasses as well. Yes, so lovely either way, with or without <laughs> the glasses. So um, before we sign off here, uh, we want to certainly let people know how they can find out more about the museum. I'll have you give the website. But uh, you have uh, been how many years now? Ten years in in existence? We've been, yeah, we've been 10 years at 12 Crane. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only joined in the last year or so um, and was in corporate before then. But I was so enamored with the museum that I felt that I had to devote my life to it and really get the word out because it is just it is just a fascinating place to be. And I would really encourage folks you know, if you have the time and you want to learn and you want to be completely blown away by what's happened here in Worcester County and in, in Southbridge, please come to the museum. And you'll discover the eye of the Commonwealth when you get there. Absolutely. You will indeed. What is the URL? What is the website? So our website is www.opticalheritagemuseum.com. We are at 12 Crane Street in Southbridge. And even if you forget all of that, you can put in Google, what is the best thing to do in Southbridge? And we will come <laughs> up as the number one thing. Well, I'm not I'm not doubting that for a, an instant. And this podcast goes all over the world. So folks, when you're traveling to New England, and many people do, put that on your list as another great stop to, uh, to check out. And if you have any trouble uh, reading a map, just get your glasses out and clean them. Clean your glasses <laughs> once in a while. Debbie, thank you so much for uh, joining me. I appreciate your time and your attention to all this and uh, the love and passion you have for it. It certainly comes through. Thank you so much, Jordan. And I, I really appreciate being on. Thank you so much, Deb. Again, go to opticalheritagemuseum.com. Get all the details on this fascinating museum, opticalheritagemuseum.com. Thank you so much for subscribing and downloading this podcast. I hope you find them as much fun to listen to as I have producing them. Find out more at my website, jordanrich.com. Also check out chartproductions.com. That's my studio where all of these podcasts are produced. This is JR as always reminding you to be well so you can do good. Take care. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.